congregation, we've finished the part of the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, about the Apostles' Creed. And then we come in Lord's Day with Lord's Day 23 of the catechism to the part about our justification. And that's on page 535 of the Book of Praise. Lord's Day 23, we'll also read in connection with this Article 22 of the Belgic Confession. But we begin with Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. There we confess the following from Holy Scripture. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God, an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. And then we look at Article 22 of the Belgic Confession, page 509 of the Book of Praise, where we confess essentially the, the same. We believe that in order that we may obtain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith. This faith embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, makes him our own, and does not seek anything beside him, for it must necessarily follow either that all we need for our salvation is not in Jesus Christ, or, if it is all in him, that one who has Jesus Christ through faith has complete salvation it is therefore a terrible blasphemy to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something else is needed besides him. For the conclusion would be then that Christ is only half a savior. We therefore rightly say with Paul that we are justified by faith apart from observing the law. Meanwhile, strictly speaking, we do not mean that faith as such justifies us. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ our righteousness. He imputes to us all his merits and as many holy works as he has done for us and in our place. Therefore, Jesus Christ is our righteousness and faith is the instrument that keeps us with him in the communion of all his benefits. When those benefits have become ours, they are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. So far, our confessions. 
brothers and sisters in the Lord and boys and girls, that also includes you, are things right between God and you. Are things right between God and you? If your answer is, well, I've, I've always done my best to do good and obey God's law, always gone to church and done the right things, I should be okay with God. Are things really okay between you and God then? Who among us here dares to say that he or she has always, always, always done their best? Could you not have done better? I'm sure if you think about it, you, you could have. You could have done a lot better. But if you answer, yes, things are right between God and me because I love him and I love my Savior and I know that he loves me, is everything right between you and God then? Could you say that with conviction, that you love God? Congregation, if you can say that, then if you have embraced Christ as your Savior, if you love this Savior, if you love God, even as a sinner, God will judge on the last day you've grievously sinned against me, but I'm not going to condemn you. I declare you absolved of all punishment and to my glory. And if our conscience accuses us today, then yet, if it sin says to us, if our conscience says to, to us, you've sinned terribly against God today, you've mistreated God, then your faith can right away say too, but you, sinner, you belong to Jesus Christ. So love him and you will not be acquitted. And that's, that's basically what Lord's Day 23 is about. And I preach to you what we confess here in this Lord's Day with this theme, are you right with God? We see that this is a practical question. In the second place, it involves some difficult words. And third, we have to avoid some misunderstandings too. It's a practical question. If you think of the old catechism from way back in the 1500s, it starts off with a pretty modern question, really. What does it help you now that you believe all this? What is the benefit of believing all that you confess with the Apostles' Creed, of embracing all that we, we have just professed when we sang the Apostles' Creed together? What good is it? What do you get out of it? That's a question that is good to ask today in our Western society because there's so much to do and so much to read. We have to be selective. We have to be selective and ask ourselves what benefit are we going to get out of doing this or reading that or being involved with that? There has to be benefit in it. Otherwise, we're going to waste our time and energy on things that have no benefit 
are a waste of time. I have to think here about all the testing that goes on with health supplements. I read the other day that researchers have determined taking certain vitamin supplements has no measurable benefit. And millions of people take them. No benefit? Then the question is why waste money on things like that and time? The thing is, a question about the benefit of something forces us to stop and think about what we're doing here when we confess our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. What are we doing here? It's not just a matter of having faith, but that faith has to benefit us, has to mean something for us in, practical, in a practical way. It has to be our strength and joy it has to be a treasure we wouldn't want to give up for anything in the world. If it isn't our most precious possession, this faith, what are we doing here? Why waste all this time on it? If we could do fine without it, even under certain circumstances, there would be every reason to question the reality of our faith too, though, right? If you could do without this faith, if it has no practical benefit for you, then your faith isn't real. That's our question. Sadly, there are people whose faith doesn't seem to be of any real practical use, benefit. When you ask them how their faith helps them on a practical level, they can't provide an answer. They don't know the rest, they don't know the rest or the joy or the power of real faith in the triune God doesn't help them in difficult times of their lives. In times of instability, they don't really find that they're grounded in what they confess. It's not the root from which their lives grow up. It's not the mystery in which they find their joy every day again. The thing is, if there's no benefit to their faith, then it can't be that they truly have faith at all. You can't find benefit in what you don't have. So you see the question of how it helps you now that you believe all that we confess from God's word in the Apostles' Creed is, is a serious question. There's lots of angles to this. It wants us to lay all our cards on the table and show what benefit we really enjoy from our faith. Of course, we also have to watch out what the motive for that question about the benefit of faith really is. The, that question could be asked with a negative purpose too under certain circumstances. You see, the devil loves to ask that question too, often via people around us, maybe even loved ones. And he asks that question for negative purpose, to try to convince us it's of no practical use to believe what we do in the creed. Think of the wife of Job. When Job's suffering and grief were at their, their height, his wife asked him why he still believed. Why hold on to your faith now, Job? It doesn't help you anyway. Why not just curse God and die? And, and you see, Satan was pushing her to ask that question with negative purpose to undermine Job's faith after he lost everything he had, even his health. What does it help you to believe all that 
when you have cancer or when you're being persecuted for being a Christian in Iran or North Korea? Does it cure your disease or give you freedom? Does faith guarantee prosperity and success? Can't it become just as difficult in your life whether you believe or don't believe? In fact, doesn't faith actually make your life somewhat tougher because you have to hold on to God even when He seems to be absent from your life? So what does it help you now that you believe all this? And congregation, from our point of view, there's only one possible answer for that question. Faith isn't going to guarantee good health or success or prosperity in this world, as all too many called so-called health, wealth, and prosperity preachers proclaim today. But faith does guarantee blessing. Blessing. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, it says in Scripture. And that's different than health, wealth, prosperity, and and happiness all the time with a big smile on your face. Success in this world can be a curse, and adversity can be a blessing. You can't connect material progress with faith in any way. Our Savior even said, whoever wants to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for his sake will keep it. No, the blessing that comes with faith with the fear of the Lord is summed up in that first answer of Lord's Day 23, in Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. So the benefit of faith is that you know that in Christ, you're reconciled with God. You're right with Him. You have the prospect of eternal life with Him. And if you think that through, though, that doesn't sound very practical, does it? What does that mean for your life, that you're right with God? It's fine to be reconciled with God and to have the hope of everlasting life, but does that, that does make the, the benefit of faith sound like kind of unrealistic, kind of pie in the sky. Don't be fooled, though. We live in an age when only things that are visible and tangible are real to a lot of people. And spiritual things are unreal. And then they forget there's a lot more between heaven and earth than you can see or touch. And I'm thinking of spiritual realities. Spiritual realities are just as real and practical as material realities, even though we can't see them or touch them. Think of what the Lord Jesus had John write to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2. He said, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Notice he doesn't say that they will be rich. They are rich, materially poor, struggling, but they are rich, spiritually, spiritually wealthy in Christ. Well, Lord's Day 23 uses the same kind of language. In Christ, I am righteous before God. Not I will be, I am now righteous before God. Imagine that. Sinner here, struggle, struggling with sin every day yet, but 
through what you confess and believe, righteous before God now too. God on your side. And that's not a treasure that's far away from the practicalities of this life. No, if I have true faith like that in what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, then I can say I'm right with God and He's with me in everything I experience practically in my everyday life. And that blessing of faith works out then in all kinds of practical ways. If you ask a Christian who has cancer how his faith benefits him, then he's going to say, I know God is with me, and he gives me strength for everything I need to deal with in my cancer. Or ask a Christian who is fighting a habitual sin in her life how her faith benefits her. Then she'll say, the Lord stands by me, and he arms me so that I can keep fighting against the devil and my sinful nature. Or ask Christians who are being persecuted how their faith benefits them, and they'll say, Christ is with us. He makes us able to stand strong and not to deny him, but to testify of him. So many different lives and practical situations so many different answers, and yet all those answers come down to the same thing. My faith benefits me because I'm reconciled with God in Christ. Righteous before God in Christ. And that's why all those believers in all the different circumstances experience that the Lord is with them and helps them in their practical situations. So this is not pie in the sky. This is practical. It's real. In every circumstance I know, God stands by me in Christ. That's what my faith means. Everything I deal with in life is meant for good. It's meant to lead me to him, to keep me with him, intended by him to strengthen my faith, to prepare me to enter life everlasting with him. We come to the second point of the sermon. Some difficult words are used in Lord's Day 23. You know, sometimes you can get so used to words that you have in, in the Bible or in your confession that we hear them, use them without really understanding anymore what they mean. You can think of this regard of the word righteous and righteousness. Righteousness is the standard God maintains in his relationship with us. It's the norm by which all must be judged in that relationship with him. God is righteous. He's 100% upright and trustworthy in the covenant relationship with us. And we're called to be the same in that relationship with him. Our righteousness has to match God's in order to be able to be in that relationship with him in order not to be judged unrighteous before him. But our righteousness is not up to par. We rebelled against God and his righteousness, and we still do. And so that relationship is broken. 
But the wonderful thing is that God doesn't only maintain the relationship with people who are perfect and righteous in themselves. God can also declare righteous if somebody else fulfills for us what is needed to restore us to righteousness. And the wonderful thing is he built that right into his covenant relationship. People, for instance, who had borrowed money in the Old Testament and had agreed to pay, pay that money back were sometimes not able to pay back that loan anymore. And that meant a break in their relationship with the people who had, they had made that agreement with. And then the, the lender had the legal right to demand payment or the debtor would end up in jail. He could demand that the debtor be imprisoned. But then God provided in his law that a redeemer could step forward and pay what was owed for the, the debtor. And that meant then that the relationship between borrower and debtor was restored. There was righteousness again. Well, that kind, of, that kind of redemption, we could say, was built into the covenant relationship with, between God and his people then. Someone could fulfill the required obligations for us, the righteousness we owed, and so restore the relationship with God so that we are righteous with him again. Somebody could atone for us, make propitiation for us, as Paul says, so that we could be declared righteous in our relationship with God as he is righteous, and we'd be restored to that relationship with him fully, fully restored. Now, in the Middle Ages, that biblical truth about redemption and atonement and payment to reconcile was basically lost. The prevalent idea in the Middle Ages was that Jesus Christ came to liberate us from the devil and so brought us to God, and now we're on our own. We have to do the rest ourselves. Now, it's true that, that Christ liberated us from the devil, but that's not the whole picture of Christ's work. It leaves us to try to become righteous before God on our own yet. And that bothered the reformer Martin Luther way back in the 1500s. He had his battles with the devil then, but he never knew whether he was truly righteous before God or not, whether his relationship with God was really fully restored. Luther's guilt before God consumed him. It just about drove him crazy. It drove him to study the Bible, thankfully. And he studied the letter of Paul to the Romans, and there he found relief. And there he found the truth that we are righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And we read that section of Romans 3 where righteousness is mentioned quite a bit. And in that context, also the law, God's norms for the relationship with him are mentioned. And some Christians figure that the law has been done away with when Christ came. We don't need the law anymore. After all, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, it said he fulfilled the law. But you need to read Jesus' whole statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, what just comes just before, he said he fulfilled the law. 
He said, Matthew 5, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill. So he didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. And fulfill doesn't mean then put an end to it. It means to show the deep meaning of it and to obey it fully. You can't do without the law. You, can't, you don't automatically do things right when you believe. You need God's commandments spoken at Mount Horeb. Well, the Apostle Paul writes positively about the law like that too. But to be positive about the law doesn't mean that he and the Lord Jesus are saying that the law could ever, ever have saved you. The law was never given to people so that they could make themselves righteous before God. Not all in the Old Testament either. No, the law and the prophets who admonished God's people for their sins showed them they could never do that. Make themselves righteous before God. It was meant, always meant, to reveal the righteousness of God through the promised Savior. That's why Paul writes in the New Testament, Romans 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, apart from outside of the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And that righteousness of God outside the law, which the ceremonial law and the prophets pointed to, is that he has made us right with him through redemption. Through faith faith in Jesus Christ and that righteousness of God that in Christ he justifies sinners that counts for all people who believe Jews and Gentiles Paul emphasizes that in Romans 3 and then he emphasizes also that the Jews need Christ's atonement or propitiation for sins too the law they were given pointed right to him we have all sinned, all people. We all need Christ, Jew and Gentile. For Christ is the way for all sinners to be reconciled from, to God. He atoned for the sins of his people. How beautifully that was portrayed in the Old Testament, right? By means of animal sacrifices, it was made clear that sins against God required blood payment, the death penalty. You actually had to die, but another life could be accepted in place of yours. And that pointed then to the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Well, that blood of Christ is what God had in mind all along from the eternity already, in fact. From eternity already. In his plan to redeem a people for himself through his Son out of all mankind. And that's why God let many sins go yet in the Old Testament. Those sins would be paid for by Christ's blood when Christ came. That's what all those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to. And now, after Christ, we see how righteous God is too. For Christ indeed died for all the sins of God's people. And therefore, all those animal sacrifices were no longer required. And many other regulations of the ceremonial law. And you see then why the Apostle Paul writes that the righteousness of God apart from law has been revealed. That means outside the Ten Commandments, and also as well as outside the whole Old Testament ceremonial law directed to showing that those laws were never given so that people by obeying it in all its details could save themselves. It was all given to point to Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God outside the law. Believers in the Old Testament could also 
only be righteous because Christ was going to die for them. And people today can only be righteous through faith in Christ, who is now being revealed as God's righteousness, the one whose blood atones for all our sins. And yes, that deep meaning of the law has remained, that deep meaning revealed by Christ. Love God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. He manifested that. And that doesn't make the, all that doesn't make the law void, do, do away with the law. No, it establishes the law, Paul writes at the end of Romans 3. Faith makes you love God's law, not because you can make yourself righteous by it, but because it shows God's righteousness and you want to grow in that too, even though you're still a sinner. Such a wonderful gospel congregation, that righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God outside the law. We were legally, were legally declared righteous before God in Christ. And you can only escape the punishment for your sins in Jesus Christ in, in Jesus Christ, in, in, in light of the second answer of the catechism, you have to imagine yourself then standing before God's throne on the last day. And on that last day, Satan will also be there as the accuser. That's what his name means, accuser. Listing all your sins and shortcomings against all God's commandments. He never kept any of them. She broke all of them. He wants you pronounced guilty. But then Christ steps forward and he says, I, I paid for, for all their sins. That's paid, that debt. He's your advocate, speaks up for you. He says he has undergone the full punishment of sin for you. But actually we don't ha only have to think of this Lord's Day in this, with this Lord's Day in, of the final judgment because we're declared righteous before God now. We mentioned that already. Now, already too. We live here and now as righteous in Christ. But there's no moment described in the Bible when we stand before God's throne here already in our lives. And you know, the devil can't accuse you now because he's being cast out of heaven. He's not allowed there anymore after Christ's ascension there. But, but the catechism actually portrays what happens here and now on an ongoing basis. On an ongoing basis, I'm in the presence of God's throne. And my conscience stands there and accuses me that I have sinned against all God's commandments and never kept any of them and am still inclined to all kinds of evil here and now. So then it's not only the devil who accuses me on the last day, but my conscience accuses me now. It agrees with him now. And that happens on an ongoing basis. But Christ, my Savior, is there on an ongoing basis as I stand before God's throne. I believe that. And I, I hold on to God in him, the Savior. And therefore, it's all good between God and me. Today, now, I am righteous. I am righteous before God in Christ. Righteous by faith, congregation. The Bible tells you so. 
God tells you so in his word. You confess that from that word in the Apostles' Creed. And you hear the verdict from that throne then too. Righteous. Acquitted. Now. Now already as child of God. And that's also what you'll hear at the final judgment then. Righteous. This is my beloved. Enter my joy. We come to the last point for this afternoon. We also have to avoid a misunderstanding. Congregation, having said that, the benefit of faith is that in Christ we're righteous before God. We also have to be aware of a possible misunderstanding here. And that's dealt with in the last question and answer of this Lord's Day. With all the, the, the emphasis on the fact that the benefit comes by faith and faith alone, you might come to the conclusion that everything depends on the worthiness of your faith. As mentioned in that last question and answer. You see, we have to watch out that we don't start focusing on whether my faith is strong enough or not. On the degrees of faith. So many are caught up in that. But our deeds are all imperfect. Our thinking is imperfect. And our faith is imperfect too. We'll hear that next Sunday in the form for Lord's Supper. We do not take part in the Lord's Supper, it says there, to declare that we're perfect and righteous in ourselves. On the contrary, we acknowledge that we are dead in ourselves. We're also aware of our many sins and shortcomings. We do not have perfect faith. And we do not serve God with such zeal as he requires. Daily we have to contend with the weakness of our faith and with the evil desires of our flesh. End of quote. It's in the Lord's Supper form. So it, you realize it doesn't depend on how strong our faith is. Imagine that everything depended on that. Our faith is so imperfect yet and so up and down and it's so hard for us to really love, to truly love God. It would be disaster for us if our salvation depended on our ability to love perfectly, to love those around us too, let alone love our enemies. No, faith, faith is simply to acknowledge our lack of love, our weakness, and to accept that God's love in Christ is greater than all our sins and our weaknesses. Brothers and sisters, how do you work with that? Well, if you have previously in your life found comfort in that you are righteous before God and Jesus Christ through faith, then hold on to that comfort whenever God seems far away too. Hold on to that as long as we acknowledge our weakness and as long as we want to grow in faith, then Christ will help. It all comes from Him, after all. He sends His Spirit into our hearts to work faith and to strengthen us again and again. But our being righteous before God in Christ is the basis for all that in the first place. Knowing that in Him we've been acquitted before God's throne. You have to think about it something like that, like this. Our life in faith, it's something 
like someone who has just been freed from serving a long sentence in jail, years in jail. It can be really hard for somebody who's been in jail for a long time to function in society again. That person's thinking can be so rooted in bad stuff that it's very difficult for him to adjust to his life outside of jail, his life in freedom. He's free, but he needs help to be rehabilitated. Congregation, that's us. Because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, we have been freed from the prison of eternal punishment for sin. But we still have a hard time getting used to being free. So the Spirit of Christ works at our rehabilitation. He renews us every time again so we overcome that old behavior more and more, little step by little step. And he assures us of eternal life. So we learn not to hate, but to love again, bit by bit. Congregation, cling to that faith we confess. Love God. And you are righteous before God in Christ. But isn't that gospel of righteousness by faith too easy, you might ask? Is that it? All you need to do is love God in Christ, expect everything from Him? Wouldn't it be a lot more stimulating and solid if we all sought reconciliation by God, our righteousness before God, by agreeing to do our utmost to serve God according to all His commandments and to hold each other to do that here too, watch over each other, there'd be a lot more to it if righteousness was by works. But imagine a young man who has trouble with his parents. A lot of trouble. He wants to make things right with his mom and dad again. He's been a bad boy, but he wants to make it right. And then he, he asks you, he asks you for advice. And he asks you, what should I do to make it right with my, my parents again? And then you could tell him, make sure you're home before 12, and make sure that you don't make so many debts that your parents end up with. And help with things at home. Cut the grass and do the dishes. And abide by all the rules of home. Would that help him? I don't think so. I think it would be a lot better to say to him, son, love your mom and dad. Love them. And don't forget that they love you and they've done a lot for you. Start with loving them. And you leave it at that. And you can trust the rest will come too. The rest will come later too. He'll want to cut the grass. Not because he has to, because he loves his parents. And want to shovel the snow. He wants to be on time because he doesn't want to upset his parents 
He loves them, and he knows they love him. So it is that simple. Love God in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. And even if you fall time and again, keep seeking his face in repentance and love. And then the Bible will keep saying to you, in Christ you are righteous before God. Believe that. Believe it. That's enough. And if the Lord comes again today or calls you to himself before he comes again, he will receive you as righteous. Amen.